0: Which books would you give an honorable mention when it comes to kind of understanding that dichotomy or how women exist within this space?
1: Lean In by Cheryl. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's this book called Girl Boss by Savannah Schindler. Rich Girl Roundup.
0: Love it.
1: Welcome back, rich girls and boys, to the Rich Girl Roundup weekly discussion of The Money with Katie Show. As always, I'm your host, Katie Gatti-Tossan, and every Monday morning, my executive producer, Henna and I are going to dig into an interesting money discussion. Here's a quick message from the sponsors of this segment. All right, before we get into today's roundup, this week's upcoming main episode is about Teacher pay. And I guess I would say the way we value or don't value educators in the United States and the fraught history and debate in this subject matter. So it's gonna be a good one, a good deep dive. We've got a lot of actual teachers from Rich Girl Nation that are supporting this episode with their own experiences. So it's gonna be great. All right, on to the roundup. Henna, how you doing today? Uh, I'm okay. I don't know if
0: our audience remembers, but you were pretty sick for like two plus weeks recently. And I think you have virtually passed it to me because now I just recovered from the flu. So I sound a little nasally, but I'm excited for the question because I think we'll hear a lot of good nuggets from you. So I'm just going to dive right in.
1: Amazing. Hit us with the question. This week's
0: question came from Ashley F. What are your favorite book recommendations right now when it comes to money and personal finance? And I'm really excited about this because I often read just fiction and you primarily focus in the nonfiction space. And at the end of every year, Morning Brew gives us a credit to go learn XYZ things. And so I used to go to your well, website. Yeah, I kind of
1: forgot about that.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I also forget about it until the end of the year, but it came to mind because... Last year, I ended up going to your book recommendations page on the website and ordering the money books that you recommended with my credit. Really? That's yeah. so funny. The downside is I have not actually read a single one of them yet, but I will get. To oh, Henna! <laughs> I live and breathe this forty hours a week. I don't want my free yeah, time. Yeah, you know, I
1: guess you you probably already get enough personal finance content in your life. You are maybe not the right candidate for more of it. I get a lot of the nuggets just like
0: distilled from you, so that I don't have to read the books. So. So I think what we could do is I'm going to ask you a question for each category of book, and then you can share the books that you most recommend. And then I think that we're updating our books page on the website, right, so that folks can go find all of your recommendations there.
1: Yeah, I think this is going to be a a larger endeavor for us because... We tend to review and talk about books pretty frequently in the Rich Girl Roundup or Fun Finds section of the newsletter every week, but there hasn't been any one location where we've been keeping a running list with a one-liner about whether we recommend it or not. So that is going to be a larger project, I think, as part of our phase three refining of our of our website, but that's something that we've heard enough interest now that I'm like, all right, we got to give the people a book recs section. I think we hear probably a couple of times a week, actually,
0: what are the the reads that Katie recommends. And I say, subscribe to the newsletter if you want to know in real time.
1: (laughs) She's like, give me your email address (laughs) and I'll tell you.
0: Okay. So the first bucket is there are a lot of personal finance books out there. There's I'll Teach You To Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. There's Financial Freedom. There's Choose FI. I'm sure all those books are excellent, but what one book stands out to you in this bucket that's maybe a little less conventional?
1: Okay. So I think overall, because you're right, I think all of those books are great for different reasons. And I'd also add, I know people love Millionaire Next Door. People love Psychology of Money. There's a lot of those kind of bestseller type personal finance books. To me, if you said, okay, I'm only going to read one, what is the one personal finance book that I should read? I actually really like, especially for the financial independence, retire early curious crowd. I read this in 2020. It's called Quit Like a Millionaire by Christy Shen and Bryce Lung. Now, they i think do a really excellent job of covering content that's just not in the other personal finance books or it's in them but it's grazed over they go very deep and i actually quite enjoy her i think she's kind of the primary writer of it or that's it, that's how the book is written it's written in first person if memory serves but i really enjoy her her writing style and her narrative storytelling also and I believe she describes it this way, she grew up in abject poverty in communist China, which I think makes her a very reliable personal finance expert because she's advising on a lot of things that she actually had to overcome. She'll talk about how... When she was little, her one toy that she had was like a used Coke can, and that there were used needles and contaminated water, and they were swimming in rivers of raw sewage. I mean, just stuff where I think, as someone that grew up in the United States in the middle class or upper middle class, I can't even wrap my head around it. So, mm-hmm. going from that to coming to the United States, she's really walked the talk in, in a big way. and I'm guessing she's
0: now a millionaire.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. It's very inspiring. And she's just very grounded. Anyone that reads this, I think, would learn a lot. Um, it informed a lot of my kind of I would say baseline or default assumptions and just a few novel principles about financial independence that I haven't really seen elsewhere. Like She addresses the first couple years of early retirement or retirement more generally and how that's typically that five-year window when big market crashes have the biggest impact on the long-term feasibility of your portfolio outlasting you. And so she talks about things like, I think they call it the cash cushion that I can't totally remember the little name she gives it, and the yield shield, which was like some dividend something or other or bonds that that you know they were going to use in the first couple of years. So they weren't touching principal in their stock and their equity investments just to make sure that like they didn't end up drawing down and getting themselves into hot water. So pretty interesting stuff and, and delivered in a way that I think most people would enjoy. So that is Quit Like a Millionaire by Christy Shen.
0: It strikes me as like a storytelling balanced with tactical takeaways. Does that seem accurate?
1: Yes, I think that's accurate. I think you'll get pretty much everything you need from that one. Hmm.
0: Okay. One thing for me, Katie, that I really admire about you is how often you will tie together individualized concepts or goals that we're told to aim for with sort of these like broader societal and cultural lenses. So like, for example, our hot girl hamster wheel reflection, or the way millennials are told to save for a down payment, but there's record low affordability and even supply budgeting for healthcare within an exploitative system, like all these different kind of examples that you helped to shine a light on. So what read would you say, or one book has kind of helped you see the world differently or maybe even more optimistically?
1: Mm. So my favorite book that made me see the world totally differently is called The Nordic Theory of Everything. Mm. I've heard you reference this one a lot. All the time. By Anu Partanen. And she is a Finnish woman who moved from Finland to New York City because she fell in love with someone that she met at a conference. Hmm. And so she moved to his town of Manhattan. And Manhattan. <laughs> Manhattan. And it basically explores the difference between the United States and Scandinavian countries and her home country of Finland, in particular, but more broadly, these Nordic states. And I really enjoyed it, I think, for a few reasons. I would say, for me personally, growing up with a pretty US centric point of view, or that American exceptionalism, if you will, where I remember being told my whole life, you know, you live in the greatest country on earth, you're so lucky to live here it painted this very, like, what is the, is it the South Park founders that have the Team America World Police? It was like, that was kind of like the viewpoint that I very much had as a kid. And so- I know the uh,
0: the American cap that says back-to-back World War champs was right. a lot when I was younger.
1: That ethos of America is the best and everything that we do here is the best way to do it. And everyone else should do what we do. And I think it wasn't until- very recently even as an adult, that I started to understand how things like what you've mentioned, how the healthcare system really pretty actively disadvantages people and is pretty exploitative, how we approach higher education and how expensive it is here and how there's I learned this phrase today, rat king, going on, <laughs> where it's just a mess behind the scenes. It's a rat king of higher education. All the tails are tied together, and it's very hard to, it's hard to, is it the government's fault? Is it the higher institution? The, uh, the lack of child care and kind of this like individualist, every man for himself, bootstrap mentality, and just kind of the downsides of those things and how it can actually create a lot of pain and suffering. And... So this book, I think, really opened my eyes, and particularly to the Nordic way of life, which not to say that that's perfect either, but she explores it through the lens of four key relationships. It's parents and their children, men and women, employers and their employees, and then government and citizens. She makes this very compelling case that in some ways the Nordic people are quote unquote freer than Americans are. And she kind of asks, What is freedom? Americans are obsessed with freedom and this idea of being free. And she's like, Well, are you really free if you can't leave your job because yeah. then you don't have health care? Are you really free if you're spending 40% of your take-home pay on child care. And so you're in this kind of rat race. God, lots of rat metaphors today. And and the way that she approaches it is not as harshly as I'm restating it and paraphrasing it now, but she really debunks this idea of the socialist nanny state. And I pulled this quote, For the citizens of the Nordic countries, the most important values in life are individual self-sufficiency and independence in relation to other members of the community. So how can you be in marriages and employment relationships and in relationship with your parents and your children that are based in love and are based in you choosing to be there and independence and self-sufficiency versus this in kind of enmeshed web of like, you're reliant on your employer for this. And then like your parents don't have elder care. So like they have to rely on you and live in your house. And it's interesting. Can
0: I push back a little? I have a question, a clarifying question maybe. When we've talked a little bit about the Nordic approach to life, we've gotten Mm -hmm. some feedback from folks that, you know, maybe the Nordic way of life is also not perfect, which you alluded to. And that maybe there's a sense of us fantasizing or glorifying their way of life do you feel like it addresses that angle at all as well in the book?
1: Yeah, I do because I think it's interesting food for thought in the sense that it opened me up to imagining how a better system could work in the U.S. and how maybe the way that we're doing it isn't the way we'd have to be doing it. Okay. There's an interesting interview that Anu did with Um, Nick Hanauer on pitchfork economics called capitalism is working better in Finland. And it's about the idea that when people feel independent from employers, they're able to be more innovative. They're able to start companies that capitalism functions better in a society where people don't feel as though they're hanging on by the skin of their teeth and like precarity could wipe the floor out from under them at any moment um which I think is really interesting. It strikes me because last week
0: when we did the behind the scenes of money with Katie, you and I were talking about how money with Katie grew and you said the only reason that Hannah and I have been able to get health insurance is because Morning Brew was able to hire us, you know, as an aqua hire situation. So it is interesting to think would you have become bigger or more Successful had we not had to worry about our health insurance and benefits and all of those things being tied. Like Mm. the only reason we were able to do those things is because they were offered by another employer.
1: Yeah. I mean, it does certainly affect people's employment decisions in the current paradigm. And I know we're really hitting that key example, but I just think it's a very pertinent one for people because depending on where you live, and this is, I think, another point that I want to include here and why I think this book is interesting, the piece of common pushback that I hear a lot is that the reason the U.S. could not operate that way is because Nordic countries are so much smaller and that Norway has 5 million people. And so people will point to that and say, well, we're just too big. But what I think is really interesting is that most of how the U.S. is governed is actually more at the local and state level. Yeah, For example, true. someone that needs healthcare in New York City actually, I think, can get it pretty cheaply, at least from friends that I've talked to that are self-employed in New York. But the tax rate in New York is much higher, right? But they can get it. Whereas things like the state of Texas, and I think it's pretty impossible to qualify for Medicaid in Texas. It's very hard to get subsidized health insurance there. So the point that I'm trying to make, and if each state government or even at the local level adopted some of these principles, it would be interesting to see. It's not that like at the federal or national level, you'd have to solve for these things, but each state could learn a lot really from the way that a country like Norway or Finland or Sweden is governed. In some cases, you're talking about a size comparison that's a little more comparable. And it really kind of reflects the way the EU treats its countries. It reminds me of some smaller cities that are
0: testing out universal basic income or even the way that teachers, we were researching our teacher pay episode, how every state has a different mandate for how pensions work and Mm -hmm. how that ultimately leads to differences in financial, but also like happiness- factors and people in those states. So,
1: Yeah. I just think it could be interesting. I like that that concept of imagining the better future and looking to other countries or other places, other civilizations that have solved for this and going, well, there is a playbook. Mm-hmm. It's not like we'd have to really reinvent the wheel. We'd have to figure out what it would look like here. But that key relationship of government and citizens. What is the role? People have differing opinions about what the government really owes its people. But I think that usually when people think about this, they're thinking nationally. They're thinking the federal government, which, yeah, I, I understand why there's not a whole lot of trust in the federal government in mm-hmm. the U.S. I understand why people feel that way or why people bristle at the idea of paying higher taxes and and we're not really getting anything for it, or there's a lot of inefficiency. And I think that there's a lot of trust in countries like Finland. They really, they believe that their government knows what they're doing, and so they feel, I think, more apt to give them the money to do it. They they get the benefits, and they feel that they're getting a lot for their tax dollars.
0: I wonder if people here would also just be more trusting of a state government than, to your point, than than the federal one. Right. Um, okay. So it seems like this is kind of the eye opener for you in terms of moving from like individualized problems to like collective solutions and that things like scale and culture have really shifted how you thought. Is there a third book that you would recommend that's focused more on like American culture that has been influential to you or just about things that are more present here in the U.S. that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, well, and I think that there's what I really like about that former book, and I think it's going to bleed into this answer, but sometimes when we have these types of conversations, you get into this weird push-pull of collectivism versus individualism, and I think that there are merits to both. Believing that you as an individual have personal agency and autonomy and can affect change is a very powerful belief. It drives people to strive, and I think that that's a good thing. I like that the way that Anu talks about it is is that the collective can power the individual and vice versa, that there's this sense of like a yin and yang and how you can achieve that best of both worlds by taking the power away from, we'll say, corporatism and having it be more of a publicly accountable governing body that's providing you with these things. You have more of an impact on how society grows and flourishes. In that same vein, I like this book called The Privatization of Everything by Donald Cohen and Alan, I'm not sure how to say his last name. I think it's Michaelian, but. It's basically about how the private sector has taken over public goods in the U.S. and why that's bad for Americans and how we've kind of had this cultural shift from thinking of ourselves as citizens to consumers and how having to, you basically have to pay for what you need with your tax dollars and then have a corporation sell it back to you. So you're paying for it twice is the idea. Yeah, And... And this book just made me think really differently about this common refrain that I always heard and repeated, which is, that's really inefficient. We should privatize it. We should make the private sector handle it because it'll be more efficient. They'll do a better job. And that used to work well until the government got involved. What the authors of this book would say is that it's the relationship. Between our government and the private for profit entities, that's creating a lot of the issues we have today in a way that straightforwardly government programs and straightforwardly private entities don't really do. I think of it like you're almost mixing the scale and budget of government with the profit motive of private, and it just distorts like the free market thing that's supposed to be happening. Think, like, student lending. So a good example of this is in in the book, they talk about how there was an issue following the 2008 crash, the Great Recession, where the city of Chicago needed money, and they basically sold all of their parking meters to private investors. And now these private investors have a 75-year lease on the parking meters in Chicago, And have the city in a really bad position because they own the public parking. It's the monopoly of public parking. Right. By a for-profit entity. And so they kind of just show how like, the city got a really bad deal on that. But now it's a 75-year lease. Now they can raise the rates whenever they want. The city has no control over it. It's just kind of a mess. There were examples of water being sold to private interests in places. but. Even my PG&E bill, I think, is a good example. You know, this is a private company with shareholders that is providing a public good. It's a necessary service. And they have this very complex relationship with the government. I'm actually reading a different book about that right now called California Burning, about um, the wildfires and PG&E's role in the wildfires and some of the lawsuits that came out of it. But our first electric bill, they charge fifty cents a kilowatt hour as opposed to like 11 cents. So we had like a $1,000 electric bill for a single month. They have a monopoly, right? Like you don't really have a choice where we live. You have to use PG&E so they can kind of charge you whatever they want. And I totally recognize too that it's not as straightforward and simple as maybe I'm painting it out to be. There's a lot going on beneath the scenes and I think people could point to straightforwardly government entities and find problems with them too. But it really highlights the twisted incentive um, that happens when you have government funding a private for-profit entity. And I would say it's very eye-opening, I think, in, in that sense. There's a lot of good examples.
0: Did you feel like you agreed with all the examples in the book after reading it or whatever their thesis
1: was? One piece of criticism I would have is that it is very case study heavy. So it's, it's a lot of case studies, examples where public goods and private interests collide. So it's very good for understanding maybe specific issues. But I do think that in some ways I, I walked away with a, a bit of a core concern that while the governing bodies and the way that they're currently set up still leave a lot to be desired, I'm not sure that just giving all the money and putting all the power back into the hands of government entirely. like I don't know if that, that would really quote unquote fix it, because I still think there's probably a great deal of corruption, and there are flaws in the way that the government currently runs. That would maybe be a, a bit of pushback, and, and that's not a reason to not read it or not a reason to not try to fix it, but it's good to be aware of these things. And I do think that there was like maybe one comment that sticks out to me. I remember reading it, and they referenced a 529 account, as an example of education being privatized or how this is a tool for the wealthy and the way it was framed. It struck me as a little bit of a stretch in that moment where I was like, "Mm, I don't know that I agree with that. Do you think the issue
0: maybe instead of the existence of a 529 is a lack of knowledge
1: about a 529? Like, or that like you have to have a special investment account to be able to afford higher education in the first place. Uh, I see. I think that maybe that was where they were trying to go with that, but the framing of like a 529 account as like a tool of the like wealthy elite corrupt. I was like, that ah, I don't know that that's like really a fair assessment of what's happening here, but I would agree that, you know, it's kind of messed up and backwards that you have to save hundreds of thousands of dollars if you want to go to college or if you want to go to like a state institution, which again, same principle, publicly funded university, still costing you, what, 15000 in state a year on average or whatever the figure is? My
0: husband had to pay for all of his college, and I think he said he graduated with like 70000 in student loans, and it was a public university.
1: In the state where he lived? Yeah, it was Rutgers. So. Yeah, there you go perfect example, <laughs> 70K, to go to your state publicly funded university. Which, you know, I I was very
0: lucky in that I had a good number of scholarships, but I also had student debt leaving school. And I thought about that a lot, about how it sets people up to be behind for decades uh, if they have to pay for access to decent education.
1: And can I tell you, too, that it kind of does go back to the Nordic theory of everything piece on education where if you educate a populace, like if you want to give people the tools they need to have the type of job that's going to enable them to break a cycle, that putting it behind this really steep paywall is not the way to... It's the argument about social mobility, right? And how it's actually quite difficult to ascend to a different class. Or if you're in... If you grow up in the bottom 20% of income households, like it's like one in five makes it to the top 20 percentile, I think. Uh, Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so if I had to guess, I
0: would say that you probably read like 20 to 30 books a year. And I'm going to rapid fire a few last questions for you on reads that maybe didn't fit any of these like broad buckets that we addressed that maybe you still want to give a little bit of a shout out to. One thing we've talked about on the show a lot is just the intersection of women in personal finance or what does it mean to be a feminist within the personal finance space? Which books would you give an honorable mention when it comes to kind of understanding that dichotomy or how women exist within this space?
1: Lean In by Sherylson. Sandberg. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> There's this book called Girl Boss by Savannah. Wow. Skinner. Never heard of it. <laughs> okay. Um, two come to mind. Right off the bat, Made by Stephanie Land. Okay. She has another book coming out, correct? She does. It's called Class. We're going to talk to her about it on the show. little teaser. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to talk to her. And uh, you've probably seen Made on Netflix if you haven't read the book. But that book and Getting Me Cheap by Amanda Freeman and Lisa Dodson, who we also have talked to on the show before, both of those books really help me more fully understand how difficult it is for women in particular to escape poverty and how the cycle is... Pretty ensnaring for women because of the expectation, with I would say gender roles, that women will be primary caretakers. And so I think Getting Me Cheap did a really good job of illustrating how young women that grow up as children in homes that are very low income um, end up being caretakers for younger siblings or shouldering a lot of responsibility in the household that their brothers maybe more often do not. And so then that interferes with their ability to get an education and get themselves out of the cycle, and then they very often end up having children of their own relatively young or adopting siblings when they're very young. and so mm-hmm. it was just a very eye-opening and data made being more narrative about one person's experience with domestic violence, financial abuse, and really fighting hard to get out of poverty and then the other being more of a data rich deep dive into the subject by two researchers but Both really good. I also just I'll throw in Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. That more from a writing standpoint, I've read it like five times. I just love the essays in that book. I think she is a really masterful writer. And I really like her take on what it means to be a woman and these topics that are very zeitgeisty, but she just captures it really well.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking like Haley Nauman and Helen Peterson, those writers as well stick out as ones that we've referenced on the show a lot too. Is there a book that has changed your approach to work or working?
1: I think the one that sticks out the most is Deep Work by Cal Newport. It just has some interesting insights about what makes work fulfilling and how to structure your life around that because...
0: I feel like there are a lot of books though in that vein. What what stands out to you about Deep Work
1: I think the emphasis on this idea, it was the first time that I'd ever seen someone talk about how the way you work as opposed to what you're working on determines how fulfilling it is. And so even if you're not crazy passionate about your job or the subject matter, that you can actually change your approach to work and the type of projects you're doing. And it kind of is all contingent upon this idea of flow state, which I think is really interesting and how it makes work very deeply fulfilling and an an interesting and enjoyable way to spend your time. I also think... I just read Derek Thompson's book. It's called On Work, Money, Meaning, and Identity. It's a collection of his essays for The Atlantic about work. And I also just find his approach very interesting because he thinks about it from that almost alien comes to Earth lens and has a very rich historical perspective on how work has evolved post-industrial revolution and what he kind of sees next. In the future of work and, and how our relationship with work is changing and how Americans specifically think about work and how that's different than maybe how the rest of the world conceives of it. Can I ask a, a challenging question? I just noticed
0: I, as you're talking that the authors we referenced for women and personal finance were all women, which makes sense. But everyone that you referenced so far for the approaches to work um, have been men and i'm curious if that is something that you have noticed or is something that feels like a, a trend or a theme
1: i guess i'm even having a hard time now thinking about productivity or careerist work writers that are
0: women i mean i wonder if that says more about the fact that men have more time to think about productivity <laughs> than Women who are caretakers throw up the and tweet where the, it's like
1: I have six kids and here's how I run a company and then the the quote tweet that just ratioed the hell out of it was like his wife stays at home with the kids yeah <laughs> it's like he has a stay at home spouse
0: <laughs> I just wonder if that's kind of happening here it's just something interesting I noticed and maybe
1: yeah that's really funny it's a good observation or it could just be that I've only ever sought out productivity advice from men but I I don't know I'm I'm sure there are women that write about this that are out there. I definitely, though, I think you're right. It's like the Tim Ferrissification of the space. It is mostly like young white men that write about productivity.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was going to make the racial observation as well, which was that all of these are white authors, maybe with the exception of Gia Tolentino. So Mm. I was just curious if there was like um, a light bulb that maybe went off that's like, hey, there's a very specific niche.
1: Well, it's going off now because you're putting you're turning it on. You just turn the
0: <laughs> light bulb on. For even like bestsellers and what makes it into the mainstream and I don't know. It's just interesting. Uh, okay, and then I have a final question from, from me, which is what book are you most excited about, wink wink?
1: Ah, well, dear listener, I'm most excited for my own book that's gonna be coming wow. out in twenty twenty five. So mark your calendars. <laughs> Go buy a calendar for 2025 and put the... No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, right now, the working title is Rise of the Rich Girls. We're really focused. And when I say we, I'm referring to the editor that I'm working with at the publishing house. We're trying to really hone right now the the angle, if you will. And I think what I've settled on is maybe this entire conversation has been indicative of this. That intersection... Between the systemic and the cultural and the economic and the the individual personal financial choices that you are making, and what happens at the intersection of those two things. And
0: wait, that's hilarious. you I didn't even tell you that this was like the kinds of questions I was going to be asking. So
1: you teed me up really well, I have to say. So, yes, that's kind of the the angle, but I, I want it to feel very empowering, right? Like, it's very easy to go to a doomer place with all of this and to be like, well, it's hopeless. We shouldn't even try. Everything's effed. Really doubling down, though, on what you are capable of and that you do have agency and that knowledge is power and you can do it and, like, we together can close. I think what I'm really focusing on is, the, you know, the six big drivers, as I see them, of the gender wealth gap. And- Mm You know, not just the wage gap, which I think Claudia Golden, who just won the Nobel Prize in ec- I think Claudia's got that one covered. The Harvard economists are on that one. SEC grad Katie Gatty Tossan's going to tackle the wealth gap with her <laughs> PR to- degree. No, I'm just kidding. From all the work we've done over the years, like I think there are several, you know, six to be specific things that I see as key drivers of the wealth gap. And they are both systemic and individual. And so I think addressing them one by one and going through that broader cultural, socioeconomic, political context of all of it, and then getting into, okay, but what can you actually do to impact this for yourself? How can you defy statistics? That is kind of where we're at right now, but I'm still very much in the thick of writing it. So we'll see. By the time it comes out, it could be about something totally different, I guess.
0: (laughs) Well, listeners, when I get my advanced reader copy, I'll clue you guys in.
1: Yes, that is a, that's where we're at. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all for this week's Rich Girl Roundup of Books. And we'll see you on Wednesday to talk about the people who taught you how to read, your educators. (laughs) Bye. Bye.